Now that we have talked about pain and its manifestations, let's talk about how you might treat it using anti-inflammatories, analgesics, and even some non-pharmaceutical treatments. So analgesia, or the relief of pain, has been existence for a very long time. In fact, natural pain remedies have been documented back to ancient times, including such things as willow bark tea, which is the source of aspirin, um, the opium poppy, or poppy juice, which is the source of morphine and heroin. And these things have been used to relieve pain before we even knew not only the process of pain or how these drugs actually functioned. Um, pain classifications and pain pathways, which we talked about in the previous lecture, could really be um, categorized in different ways, but understanding what the pain process is and how it would be classified might actually inform the type of treatment that you would choose. For example, we talked previously about defining pain as acute or chronic or even breakthrough. And in fact, just to reiterate, chronic, some people define based on how long it's been in existence. I've also seen more recent information indicating that regardless of the amount of time, it may be helpful to consider that it would be any pain that lasts beyond the time that you would expect. So if that tissue is healed and no longer injured and the inflammatory process is done, but yet pain continues, that could be considered chronic pain regardless of time. Then you could even describe pain based on whether it's because of stimulation of pain receptors or nociceptive pain versus damage to nerves like neuropathic pain or a combination of the two. And then as we'll find out, mild, moderate, and severe defining the intensity of pain may also inform the choice of medication that could be given. So part of this decision-making process has been defined by the World Health Organization, actually. They created a analgesic ladder, and some researchers more recently have proposed that that needs a little bit of modification from how it was originally proposed. So this is the modified analgesic ladder, um, and the original World Health Organization version included only three steps. That started with non-opioid analgesics, usually NSAIDs, and then at if that wasn't enough to control pain, then very weak opioids might be used, and then only then, if that is out of control, that stronger opioids might be used. But they argued, um, these researchers, that we might need to add a fourth step that actually goes into a more um, invasive form of pain relief, and that might include injecting pain directly into the, the spinal cord or um, epidural space, such as nerve blocks, epidurals, um, pain pumps, neurolytic block therapies, but these are sort of a last resort and might be more um, apt to be used in surgical procedures. They suggested this idea of um, two methods of using this, that in the case of acute pain, that you might start a little higher and then step down as you determine what is effective. Whereas for chronic pain, because you know those individuals may more likely be on medication for a while, you would start low and then step up because taking it over time means your body's going to get used to it and require a higher dosage as you go forward. Now, the issue here is that you have to consider side effects because as we'll talk about, when you get into opioids, you have not only a risk of dependency, but also a a big risk of other side effects that can be detrimental to an individual's functioning. And this idea that some drugs have other effects that 
you know, may not have been originally intended, such as we'll find out that there are some issues with coagulation and healing with some of these or a sedative effect. And we also have to consider that some of these drugs have metabolites that they themselves have effects. For example, a prodrug is when the original drug that you take um, is inactive. So that inactive form is metabolized. And I apologize, my handwriting is terrible right now with the, using this pen because I'm trying not to touch the screen with my hand as I'm writing. Um, so the inactive form is metabolized into an active form of a drug. And so we'll talk about that's the case, for example, of codeine. Codeine is actually converted to morphine in your body. And so codeine is considered a pro-drug. So it has very little effects as codeine itself, but once it's metabolized to morphine, it obviously has an effect. So that's all considerations in deciding what kind of drug and, and the dosage that might be used. So let's talk about what these drugs are that might be used in that process. So we, as the title of our lecture implies, there are sort of two main categories. We have analgesics and anti-inflammatories. And while there is a little bit of overlap with these, there are some differences in what drugs are included in those two categories. So let's start by outlining those two labels, and then we'll talk about each drug underneath that um, labeling system here in a second. So under analgesics, we try to separate these as either non-narcotics or narcotics. And so this is where that idea of opioids comes in. Ideally, you want to start with non-narcotic analgesics, and these include things like NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that happen to also work as analgesics, even though they have anti-inflammatory effects. And you know some of these. You know them perhaps by their brand names of Motrin, Aleve, or even Celebrex, which is a um, prescription NSAID or their generic name of ibuprofen or naproxen. And then um, salicylates also fall under this category. And you know that as aspirin and the chemical name abbreviation is ASA. Now, non-salicylates also fall under non-narcotic analgesics. These don't have anti-inflammatory effects. The only one we really use in the US is acetaminophen, the generic name for Tylenol. And this is, as I'll tell you in a moment, an abbreviation for the chemical name. So ideally, you wanna go with non-narcotic analgesics. And many of these are over-the-counter, such as these. And then some are prescription. And so it allows people to manage pain at home um, pretty safely. Whereas narcotics, these are all gonna be controlled substances like morphine and codeine. Now we have to contrast these to anti-inflammatory drugs. Now NSAIDs um, and so your ibuprofen, naproxen, Celebrex, and aspirin, these are under both categories. They are both anti-inflammatories and analgesics. However, you notice Tylenol is not on this list because Tylenol is not a good anti-inflammatory. It may have some very little effects as an anti-inflammatory, but not significant enough to be considered one. And then you've got steroids. So you've got non-steroidals and steroidals under the anti-inflammatory drug category. And you know some of these like cortisol, prednisone, methadone, um, and we'll go into an explanation of each one of these 
going forward. So how would you keep this all straight? Quite honestly, I struggled with this, um, you know, when I was initially learning it because some of them overlap, some of them do not. So this is what works for me to keep them um, straight. Anti-inflammatories and analgesics are technically two separate categories of drugs describing what they do. Do they reduce inflammation? Do they reduce pain? Some do both. So under the anti-inflammatories category, you have steroidals and non-steroidals. And aspirin is considered an NSAID, but it is technically a little bit different in terms of how it works. So you've got NSAIDs and salicylates and steroids under the category of anti-inflammatories. Now, as far as analgesics, there's actually three categories. You've got NSAIDs and salicylates, you've got non-salicylates like Tylenol, and your opiates or narcotics. Now, so again, steroidals and non-steroidals is what you have under the anti-inflammatories category. You could also then describe your non-narcotics and narcotics for analgesics. So you've got two categories to, to distinguish under anti-inflammatories, steroidals and non-steroidals. And then under analgesics, you've got NSAIDs and salicylates, non-salicylates and opiates. So here, Tylenol is not an anti-inflammatory, so it would not be under this category. Whereas your narcotics, your opiate narcotics, they don't have an anti-inflammatory effect, so they're not gonna be under that category either. So this hopefully will help you sort of keep these straight. Now what we're going to do then is go through each of these separately to help you understand how they work, their mechanism of action, and any issues that may exist because of it. So let's start with steroidal anti-inflammatories. You know these perhaps by other names, glucocorticoids, corticosteroids, steroidals, and then specific examples using their generic name are things like prednisone, cortisone, hydrocortisone, dexamethasone, methadone. So there are several different ones in here. Um, to keep straight. Now, that's, those are just examples. I'm not asking that you have those memorized, but those are just examples to help you recognize. Now, the mechanism of action, or MOA, of steroidals is actually a pretty complicated process, and it's been boiled down more recently to the effects of steroids um, on a protein in the surface of a cell membrane called arachidonic acid. But rather than the Cox pathway, which we'll talk about with NSAIDs, they use a little bit different enzyme, one called phospholipase A2. And this is a pretty complicated process because not only do you get a depression of the inflammatory process, you actually get a suppression of the immune system in general, which that's actually an adverse side effect. We don't want to suppress the immune system if we can help it, but sometimes steroids can be really useful if the inflammation is significant enough that this is the best route for reducing inflammation. So what can happen here is you've got effects on a whole bunch of different immune components, and all of these together then end up causing a suppression of the immune system. Now that means that you're gonna get something beyond just what your NSAIDs do. You're gonna get a decrease in a whole bunch of different cytokines and chemokines, in addition to changes to immune cells themselves. Now, one of the issues with this is it can make it seem like you have an excess of steroids. Your body makes these naturally. They're a part of our own physiology. And so if 
your body senses you already have enough in your system, you may end up with the adrenal gland, which normally produces steroids, um, becoming insufficient. So you have this feedback mechanism and your adrenal gland starts to notice, oh, there's plenty of steroids already in the system. I'm going to stop making them. So if you're on steroids for too long, you actually have a risk of hypoadrenocorticism or adrenal insufficiency which means that your adrenals have stopped making as much steroids because they sense that there's already plenty in the system. And so if you take this for a very long period of time, you really have to taper down the dosage so that your adrenals start ramping back up their own endogenous production of steroids. Now, one of the other issues because of the immune system suppression is infection. You are at a greater risk of infection when you're on a steroid for a very long period of time because of all these changes to the immune cells. Now, so this might be used for a lot of things like um, COPD when you have chronic bronchitis or asthma, and some of them may be even more locally administered steroids, like an inhaler of a steroid that reduces your um, allergic response and, and inflammatory response. So this may be perfect for certain situations, but you have to be aware of the adverse effects. Now moving on to NSAIDs, your non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, rather than the phospholipase 2 pathway being blocked as a mechanism of action, you have to look at one of the other enzymes, and that arachidonic acid pathway. So here, let's talk about that again. Arachidonic acid, I mentioned before, is a component of cell membrane phospholipids, and it is converted to a arachidonic acid metabolite that's also called an eicosanoid. And eicosanoids are chemical mediators that are produced in pretty much nearly every cell, and they may maintain and regulate all kinds of bodily functions in addition to the process of inflammation, which is why we're addressing them using NSAIDs. Now, those arachidonic acid metabolites or eicosanoids are produced by either the COX pathway or the lipoxygenase pathway. Now, we're not going to go into too much detail here with this one um, because your NSAIDs largely have their effect by decreasing the function of either the COX-1 enzyme or the COX-2 enzyme, or in some cases, both. So the COX-1 enzyme is in nearly all tissues, and it regulates a ton of body functions, which means you may end up with some side effects if you're largely addressing the COX-1 enzyme to reduce inflammation. Whereas the COX-2 enzyme, it is obviously induced in inflammation and tissue injury, but it's in fewer tissues, mainly in the brain, the female reproductive tract, blood vessel walls and kidneys rather than in all tissues in the body. And so if you can, as some drugs do, isolate and um, be selective for COX-2 enzyme, you may have fewer adverse effects. But what happens when you inhibit these is you inhibit the production of those chemical mediators that normally produce increased blood flow, redness, chemotaxis, sensitizing the pain receptors, and induce the pain response in the central nervous system. Now this should sound familiar, right? Some of these are components of the cardinal signs of inflammation. So if you can reduce the chemical mediators that are produced via this COX pathway, then you can reduce inflammation. So that's what's actually going on with NSAIDs. So some examples again, ibuprofen, naproxen, celecoxib, which is Celebrex at, in its um, trade name, and that is a prescription only, whereas these are OTC, over-the-counter. Um, and by the way, remember, the generic name is 
and lowercase, and then your trade name would be capitalized. Now, the thing to note about NSAIDs is they have three different effects. They are anti-inflammatory, antipyretic, and analgesic, meaning they reduce inflammation. Antipyretic means they reduce fever, and analgesic means they reduce pain. But that doesn't mean they do each of these things at a similar amount at any given dosage. For example, it's possible that in order to get a greater anti-inflammatory effect, you may need to take a larger dosage. So you could get relief of pain, for example, with just 400 milligrams four times a day, as opposed to um, 600 milligrams might be needed. And even some of this change, it all depends on which drug we're talking about here. For example, naproxen is a 12-hour drug as opposed to 4 to 6 or 6 to 8. Um, so you obviously have to look at your dosing instructions to determine that. The mechanism of action, or MOA, here, as I said, it reduces the production of arachidonic acid metabolites, also called eicosanoids, and it inhibits the COX pathway. And it may do COX-1, COX-2, or both. Now, as I said, because the COX-1 enzyme is in many different tissues, you get greater side effects from that. So some drugs, like Celebrex, inhibit only COX-2, which means you don't get some of those adverse effects. One of the bigger ones is GI upset. So it turns out one of those chemical mediators that is produced through the COX pathway is prostaglandins. And prostaglandins have multiple effects all over the body. Some of them um, affect the stomach and the acid production, which is why when you take NSAIDs, you get abdominal pain, gastric upset, potentially heartburn, risk of ulcers. Um, they also have, for example, in the effect of thromboxane, an effect on platelets. So you can get a prolonged bleeding time as a result of NSAIDs. And other things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. So multiple GI or um, bleeding effects that are not ideal. But some more recent research has indicated that there may be a decreased incidence of colon cancer with regular use of NSAIDs. And it's not that you would take this necessarily to avoid colon cancer, but Celebrex has actually been added to some of the treatment regimens of individuals who are receiving chemotherapy for colon cancer because of that benefit. So this isn't something you would take to, to avoid colon cancer, but it might be part of the treatment process for that. Now, there are also many interactions with NSAIDs. Anticoagulants, partly because it also affects bleeding times, antihypertensives and beta blockers, lithium and diuretics. So this is, again, something you would converse with your doctor or pharmacist to make sure that you're avoiding some of these issues. Now, one of the others under this heading of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories is aspirin, which is a salicylate. Now, aspirin is um, the generic name for the chemical name of um, acetyl salicylic acid. And often that's just too long to say, so it's abbreviated ASA. And this is another one that has anti-inflammatory, antipyretic, and analgesic properties. It also inhibits prostaglandin through COX enzymes, similar to your other NSAIDs like Advil um, and Aleve and Celebrex. But this is a little bit different in its chemical structure, which is why it's a little bit separate. It's a salicylic acid derivative. Its adverse effects are very similar, gastric upset, inactivating platelets, GI bleeding. And in fact, because there are not only some aspirin preparations in other drugs, 
not only just sold by itself, but there are also salicylates in some foods. For example, prunes, raisins, tea, curry powder contain salicylates themselves. So there is a possibility with high doses of something called salicylism. Now that that is reversible, and so this dizziness, tinnitus, nausea, vomiting, flushing, rapid heart rate, and, and respiratory rate can all be um, reversed if the drug is stopped. Now, this is also often recommended as a preventative for heart attacks and strokes. And it used to be that that was just something that as a low dose that it was recommended um, to reduce your risk. But more recently, there has been research regarding balancing the risk of reducing heart attack and stroke risk with the risk of bleeding because it turns out that sure taking this prevents the clotting that might lead to a heart attack or ischemic stroke but if there is an emergency or a surgery or an accident or a fall particularly in those in later life the risk of bleeding may outweigh the benefits here. So it's it's truly something that you have to look at more specifically with your doctor. And so there's been a lot of this. Um, so the idea here is that if there is no known cardiovascular disease, it may be that we really don't need to recommend this for those individuals. In any case, you need to do some sort of risk benefit analysis with your physician. In fact, aspirins are generally not recommended to people um, for men under 45 or women under 55. And this range in here from 45 to 80 or 55 to 80 with men and women really means that you need to look at whether this idea of reducing the um, heart attack and stroke um, risk is more beneficial than having to worry about gastrointestinal bleeding, ulcers, and a hemorrhagic stroke because of the increased bleeding risks. Now, another thing you see here that there are some age restrictions, and this is also true of children. So you wouldn't give aspirin to children because it has been documented that after a viral in infection, specifically chickenpox and influenza, that you can get something called Rye syndrome. And it's very rare, but um, there are other better drugs that could be used, such as Tylenol, for treating fever um, and pain related to viral infections, particularly fever. And these can lead to things like hepatitis and uh, encephalopathy because of taking aspirin after a viral infection. It is also important to avoid aspirin before surgery um, or, for example, before giving blood if you're a blood donor because, again, that means your platelets aren't really even going to be useful as a blood donor because they have been inactivated by aspirin. So, again, having that kind of um, awareness to talk about this is um, pretty important in terms of making sure that you are um, balancing the risks and benefits. So what about non-salicylates? So this goes now beyond just the idea of anti-inflammatories because what you'll see here is acetaminophen, which is the generic name for Tylenol. Here's the chemical name and acetyl-P-aminophenol, often abbreviated APAP. Here, its effects are antipyretic and analgesic. There are no anti-inflammatory effects. The mechanism of action here does inhibit COX, but it inhibits the COX pathway in the brain. So not systemically, which means it has fewer side effects. You don't get the gastric upset and platelet effects that you do with other NSAIDs. And in fact, there's also the possibility that it's connected 
to another enzyme a little bit farther down there um, in that process, which is peroxidase, which means, so if you look at this schematic, we talked about steroids as an anti-inflammatory. They work on phospholipase A and your NSAIDs work on the COX pathway. Well, not only does acetaminophen work on the COX pathway, perhaps only isolated to the brain, but you're also getting some effects on the peroxidase pathway, which is why you avoid some of these other issues. So there are actually very few adverse reactions, assuming you are taking it as directed. Um, it, the only really big issue you have to be aware of here is that acetaminophen can often be in other products that are unknown by the user. For example, taking NyQuil, taking Excedrin. So this might be a multi-drug formulation. In the case of NyQuil, it's a flu and cold medication. And so it contains two to three different drugs altogether. So if somebody takes NyQuil for their flu, but then they also like take Tylenol as well for their fever, that could put them in an over dose risk. And the issue here is that you could get into a liver toxicity. In fact, acute liver failure happens more often with Tylenol than any other cause in the U.S. It's one of the biggest contributors, contributors to acute liver failure in the U.S. Now, it also is something as a potential risk for diabetics as affecting your blood glucose results. But it's generally safe, especially for children. And so this would be one that is recommended as more of a first line of um, a recommended drug, particularly with children who have a high fever, and then maybe depending on their age, using ibuprofen or another NSAID um, to help with fevers and pain as well. So we talked about your anti-inflammatories, steroids, and non-steroidals. Now getting into analgesics, remember you've got NSAIDs and salicylates, non-salicylates, which we just talked about, and then narcotic analgesics. So your narcotic analgesics are all controlled substances. And remember when we talked about that in the intro to, to pharmacology lecture, that means that they're under lock and key, that they have to be prescribed by a physician. Only certain people with a DEA license um, who follow certain rules and documentation have access to even get the drug and distribute it. So the mechanism of action of opioids actually uses one of your endogenous um, processes. So you have natural pain relievers that your body makes, endogenous opiates that you know better as endorphins. So what happens here is these drugs attach to your endogenous opiate receptors or endorphin receptors such as mu, kappa, and delta. And the majority of pain relief comes from combining with mu receptors in the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. Now the prototype drug in the opiate or narcotic category is morphine. And so some of these other drugs, um, while in a different form that you take it in, some of them are even converted to morphine in your body. So for example, codeine is a prodrug form of morphine. It's converted to morphine in your body. Some other ones that are naturally made from the opium poppy you may recognize are hydromorphone, which is the generic name for Dilaudid, oxymorphone, which is the generic name for Opana, oxycodone, the generic name for Oxycontin. And then we've also developed some synthetic opiates, which might be stronger or have a longer mechanism of action or longer um, therapeutic um, uh, effect such as methadone, um, fentanyl, Demerol. So these are ones that you may recognize, but um, here it's important to realize that they are synthetic. Now, these are used only for moderate to severe pain. You would try a non-narcotic analgesic 
first before moving to these. Now there are some other times you might use this, for example, anxiety, pre-surgical sedation. In fact, there are some versions of this that might be used specifically codeine as an anti-diarrheal or a cough suppressant um, rather than an analgesic. Now, opioids have a high abuse potential. That's why they are a controlled substance. And in order to reduce the dosage and the risk of abuse potential or dependency, they're often combined with other drugs and for synergistic effect to try to keep the dosage of the opiate low. So for example, acetaminophen is one that has a synergistic effect with many opiates. And I'll show you in a moment here what some of those combinations are that you'll probably recognize that are used to try to keep that dosage of opioids down because we have had more of an opioid epidemic. In fact, um, these are, I believe, um, only a couple years old, these, these statistics, that around more than 130 people have died every day from opioid-related overdoses. In fact, you probably have seen a lot of things in the news that many places are allowing um, Narcan to be stocked in order to reverse um, respiratory depression, which is one of the adverse effects of opioids and often is what leads to death with an overdose of opiates. So um, the other thing that makes it a little bit harder to, to figure this out is that a certain percentage of the population may not metabolize this as we would expect. So some of them are very poor metabolizers, which means in the case of, for example, codeine, and it has to be metabolized to be active into a form of morphine. So if they are poor metabolizers, they may need a higher dosage in order to get the same pain relief as somebody else. Or on the other hand, there's a small percentage of people who seem to metabolize them quickly, and they may end up with a toxic dose because that amount they are metabolizing at a greater rate than somebody else. So it all depends on something you may not know. It all depends on your enzyme status. And this may not occur until you happen to have surgery or you're recovering from some sort of injury and that opiate is, is prescribed and given and all of a sudden you find out that you don't metabolize it um, the same way as you would expect. So some of the adverse effects, much like with NSAIDs, how you have all these other effects because of prostaglandin, well, it turns out that you have a lot of other effects in the body with opiates as well. Um, respiratory depression is one of the risks. Dizziness, constipation is common. In fact, that's one of the reasons that it's sometimes used as an anti-diuretic, or I'm sorry, anti-diarrheal. Um, it has a sedative effect. You get pupil constriction, urinary retention, orthostatic hypotension, which is a te technical term for a drop in your blood pressure when you go from maybe sitting or laying down to a standing position and even vomiting. So these are all things that ideally you want to avoid, which is where using that smallest dose possible is kind of critical, careful consideration for the prescribing of these. There are also a lot of interactions, alcohol, antihistamines, antidepressants, sedatives, and in fact, some of the deaths of celebrities due to overdoses are sometimes because of interactions with some of these, like phenobarbital, which is anticonvulsant, or benzodiazepines, like Valium, Xanax, Ativan, when combined with these, um, could produce an overdose or situation in which respiratory depression can't be overcome. Um, there are some atypical opioids, which are really interesting because they may allow you to have a lower dose and have a greater effect because they have a dual mechanism. So this is essentially acting. There are two in this category. 
um, that has a centrally acting um, opioid effect, but with two different mechanisms. So the ones that are in this category are tramadol and tapentadol. In tramadol, for example, it exists as sort of a mirror image. It's sort of a racemic um, blend of two different versions of the drug that are mirror images of each other. And if you remember maybe back to chemistry, these are called enantiomers. You have a positive and a negative version of this um, particular structure. And they combine then with different um, receptors. So here the red one that you see here combines with certain receptors and has an effect. And in this case, what you're seeing is a reuptake inhibition of certain um, nerve transmitters, so like noradrenaline. And that means that you're getting a pain reduction effect from that in addition to combining with the mu receptor that normally happens with opioids. So the other version of tramadol, for example, combines with mu receptors as you would expect opiates to do, but then you're also getting a pain relieving effect, as I'll talk about here in a second, um, by changing the neurotransmitters as they are, up, are released and taken back up at the presynaptic neuron. So the approach here for opiate analgesia is to use only in the cases of moderate to severe pain and to have the lowest effective dose for the shortest period of time. And so this um, process is called multimodal analgesia. And the idea of here is to try to use opioid sparing management whenever possible. So one of the ways to do that is to use a um, synergistic combination with Tylenol. And by doing that with acetaminophen, you end up having a lower dosage of the opiate, but still the same pain relief. So remember that synergism is when you have one plus one equals three, which means you're getting a greater effect when you combine these two. So you might, Tylenol with codeine is one that's quite often used and sort of for moderate pain. And then for more significant pain, you may have heard of Vicodin, which is when you combine acetaminophen and hydrocodone, Percocet, when you combine acetaminophen and oxycodone, and Ultraset, which is a combination of acetaminophen and one of those dual mechanism drugs I just talked about, Tramadol. So what this idea of multimodal pain management does is, for example, if you can combine these drugs, not only do you get this um, effect, synergistic effect, but you can also affect the pain in different places. So acetaminophen and opioids being used are getting at different places in the pain modulation process. And you can see some of the other ones that we talked about here, that NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors like Celebrex, these could be used at different places. And so this multimodal opioid sparing management is going to hopefully avoid dependency and um, have it be the, the least amount for the shortest period of time. Now, topical analgesics is another way to try to avoid the use of um, a stronger orally administered topical or a orally administered analgesic, and that's because using a topical form gets right to the site typically of pain, particularly if we're talking about sort of a musculoskeletal pain. And so, in this case, you could use some of the same drugs we've already talked about, but just change the method of delivery. So, topical NSAIDs are quite common. They use the same mechanism as a systemic or oral formulation, but they have fewer systemic adverse events. You might not have the GI upset. Um, the, the platelet and bleeding time issues. And you are familiar, I'm sure, with some of these. Bengay, which is a salicylate cream. Aspercream, which is also another form of salicylate. 
um, administered across the skin. And then you've also got, for more serious pain, fentanyl um, administered as a transdermal patch. That's a possibility. And even some capsaicin formulations can help with the reduction of pain. And what's interesting about these is they work in a little bit different way than what your NSAIDs do. They address the, the site itself, the detection of pain at your nerve fibers, specifically the C fibers, the slow ones, by stimulating them and then subsequently desensitizing them. So this capsaicin comes from um, peppers. And so this, um, this ends up causing a burning sensation, which that part is unpleasant, but then you end up with desensitizing that area for a certain period of time. And in fact, we're thinking it may deplete substance P in addition to um, addressing those sensory C fibers. So that's a possibility that someone could use for a local analgesia. You can also use local anesthetics depending on the situation. There are transdermal creams, gels, and sprays, often that contain something that somehow blocks the, the channels in the membrane of the cells that would normally allow for the transmission of um, signals. So the sodium channels, for example, are affected by lidocaine. So lidocaine can be a local anesthetic that is used as an injection or a cream or gel. And so this will prevent the generation and propagation of that impulse going forward. Now we can also try to use some things that take a little bit different approach. So anticonvulsants and, um, and antidepressants, believe it or not, could be used for not only their pain relief, but also the other aspects beyond physical pain. For example, we talked about how pain is subjective and part of it is your perception of it. And part of your perception has to do with other biopsychosocial factors like your social situation, your mental state. Um, and so some of these things may be affected and have a sort of cause and effect cycle. For example, depression can increase pain and then that pain therefore increases depression. So antidepressants may be an effective way to reduce pain in some individuals. And in some cases, that pain has nothing to do with a disease process. It may have something to do with damage. Well, it still may be a disease process, but it may have damage due to be due to damage to the nerve fiber itself, such as in the case of neuropathy, or have an unexplained origin, such as in the case of fibromyalgia. So in fibromyalgia and complex regional pain syndrome, we often don't have evidence of actual or threatened tissue damage or evidence of a disease process in the system. And so that's sort of an unexplained reason for pain. And so in those cases, in addition to neuropathic pain, it may be useful to, instead of the analgesics that I previously described, take a little bit different approach. And so one of those categories is gabapentinoids, and you may have heard of these before, pregabalin or gabapentin. What they do is selective inhibition of the presynaptive subunits in the calcium channel. So here in this picture, you've got this calcium channel at the end of your nerve. And so when you get calcium going through, that's what causes some of these neurotransmitters to be released. So a gabapentinoid will combine with that calcium channel, a, a certain part or subunit of that calcium channel, and sort of slow down the influx of calcium that normally is what leads to the neurotransmitters being released. And this is especially helpful in neuropathic pain. 
So this may be something that is used for diabetic neuropathy at a better success rate than some of your other pain relieving medications. Now, as I said, some antidepressants can be used to reduce pain. Um, your tricyclic antidepressants, um, your um, selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors like Cymbalta can also work because they end up augmenting the descending inhibitory pathways in the pain process. And that may help both in the, you know, stopping that cycle of pain depression and may even in some people who don't have depression get at this in a different way and reduce the need for using opiates. Now, pretty significantly for you guys, this is a category of medications, analgesics and anti-inflammatories that are used by many athletes. It may be used to um, get rid of symptoms related to training like um, delay onset muscle soreness. It could be to um, allow them to get back to training more quickly from, a, from an injury. But in any case, this has been found, and you, you'll see here, this is from one of the articles, and they use the European term for acetaminophen, which is paracetamol. We use the term acetaminophen, but just realize they are the same thing. But they're widely consumed. Over-the-counter analgesics and anti-inflammatory drugs are widely used by athletes worldwide. And while they may reduce short-term pain and inflammation, we also know that they, they affect the muscle turnover that is normally part of that adaptive exercise response. Um, because it should make sense to you that inflammation, as we learned previously, is the beginning of the healing process. And that muscle turnover, when you have a training adaptation, that damage to the muscle occurs first. And it is through the inflammatory and healing process that you get a positive training adaptation. So here's, here's the, the boiling it all down for you. There's emerging evidence that acetaminophen or Tylenol can actually enhance endurance parameters. So some research presented in that article is that the increase in cycling performance, increase is particularly in the heat, and that could be from the antipyretic um, efforts of Tylenol, um, sprint cycling performance, and then maximal voluntary contractions. So lots of evidence out there indicating acetaminophen can increase your exercise performance. Aspirin kind of didn't really have much of an effect according to the research. But one of the issues here is that you may have um, a risk of injury. This may allow for overtraining because you get a decrease in the pain response so you may also get a decrease in the anabolic response to acute exercise bouts, and then also a decrease in long-term gains of muscle mass and strength. And this is in particularly young, healthy individuals, so it might have an even greater effect in those who are, have a disease status or who are in rehabilitation as opposed to being healthy. So we do need further study of this, as you can see from that article. Um, but what you really need to do is be aware. We... We just, as whatever capacity you're in future profession, as a, a coach, um, a, a healthcare professional, just be aware of, you know, you may come across an athlete, for example, who wants to try to use this to increase their performance, but in the acute and long-term um, outlook of this, anti-inflammatories in general 
um, even not looking at acetaminophen, but your other NSAIDs, they're going to reduce the inflammatory response that's often the beginning stage of healing where the muscle is going to remodel itself and get a training adaptation. So decrease in protein synthesis after resistance exercise, a decrease in some of these other cellular responses that are part of that remodeling. So decrease in muscle hypertrophy, decrease in muscle strength after resistance exercise. These are all important things in the long term that are good to remember for athletes because it may be a short-term gain and it may be an addictive short-term gain. They think, oh, I really did well with that by taking acetaminophen. But then in the long term, um, they may realize that it actually is preventing their progression. And so this is where considering non-pharmacological therapies may be really helpful. And not only will that help in reducing that sort of ethical question of whether taking those for performance enhancements, in fact, you know, there I've even seen arguments of whether Tylenol should be added to the doping list. But so having non-pharmacological therapy options could reduce your need and the ethical question for analgesics and anti-inflammatories in sports and competition. Things like rest, ice, compression, and elevation, or rice. And this could be particularly important in reducing the effects of inflammation that affect your function. So if swelling is something that really affects your function of a limb or extremity, then this can be... Um, helpful to at least allow you to maintain some function. Um, both thermal and cryotherapy can be helpful in both. So thermal, um, particularly if the muscles are very tense and tight, and that could lead to pain, that could be a good option. Or if there's a lot of inflammation, using cold therapy could be something helpful. Massage can also be helpful. We learned back when we talked about pain that your touch receptors move faster in your response in the nervous system. And so you can kind of relieve pain just by touch. MS MBSR is the abbreviation for mindfulness-based stress reduction or um, mindfulness often for short. And this can be really important as a way for individuals to kind of have a psychological response to pain that doesn't become negative and a, a process that enhances pain. So meditation can be helpful and even other psychological approaches such as cognitive behavioral therapy and something called acceptance and commitment therapy. And what these do is go through either in the case of CBT, a process of cognitive restructuring that makes make you identify your negative thoughts that might be making your pain worse or changing your behaviors because of pain. And then to reevaluate those and look at them in a different way. So restructuring the way you think. Acceptance and commitment therapy can be really helpful, particularly in those with chronic pain, because the idea with ACT is that you sort of um, diffuse your feelings about the pain because there's, sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. And so then you, you try to find ways to let it go. Recognize it, accept it, and find ways to let it go as a way to move past the pain if possible. There's also some electrical stimulation possibilities that can help with pain. Some of them, like SCS, is spinal cord stimulation. So that happens, as its name implies, right by the spine using electrical impulses. Or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation or percutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. These would be done closer to the site of the actual pain as opposed to at the spinal cord. And those also can help with um, reducing your pain perception or other um, you know, more 
um, alternative therapies like acupuncture have been used successfully. So there are other non-pharmacological strategies that may be quite helpful. There are some that if you look at the studies have some questionable use, but you know, for some people, sometimes because of the biopsychosocial effects of pain may be almost um, psychological in their effect. And if it works, then there's nothing wrong with really using that. So um, it depends on the situation. And sometimes just trying different things can help different people. Um, getting adequate sleep is another one. And that's where the stress reduction can come in. If, if pain keeps you up at night, then finding ways to relax, meditation, stress reduction could make sleep a little bit easier. Um, there's not a lot out there that's indicating that um, supplementation could be helpful. And in fact, this could create some issues with interactions and other things. So there's unclear evidence of whether that truly helps. But some of these other ones have had quite a bit of success, not only among athletes, but also among those um, patients with chronic pain. Now, there are some issues with pain management. So obviously, I mentioned that opioids long-term can induce dependency. And so if there's a suspicion of this, you have to look for signs of abstinence syndrome if the drug is withdrawn, or even looking for prior to withdrawing of that, whether there are personality changes, drug-seeking behavior. Sometimes people will skip from doctor to doctor or emergency room to emergency room trying to get prescriptions of opioids. Um, and then because of the opioid epidemic, there's also this possibility that we are under-prescribing in those who might truly need it, either because of a fear of dependency um, or because we're unsure if this person actually needs the drug or not. So there's some of these biases that affect the prescription of op opioids, for example, gender, male and female, minorities, and some of that may be a language barrier, age, particularly when we're talking about older adults who might have other restrictions to um, like liver and kidney function. So some of these things um, are all being brought to the forefront as we address this opioid epidemic. So I just bring it to your attention that considering non-pharmacological therapies and multimodal pain management, that those may be the best way to go about not only reducing the opioid use, but also allowing um, a better pain management because there is a biopsychosocial um, aspect of pain that may go beyond just addressing the physical sensations of pain. So if you have any questions on this um, on this content, please let me know. It is a little bit complicated, but hopefully um, with going through some of the ways of organizing this, you can keep everything straight.